Hi, this is Mike. Thank you for being a part of what God's doing at the Heights Fellowship. We hope you enjoy this message. We know it's not the same thing as being here in person, but we pray that God would move as you listen and as God applies this to your heart. This morning, we are going to just jump right into this. We are going to be in the Gospel of John, chapter 9, and we're looking at a story where Jesus gives sight to a man born blind. Now, in one way or another, we are going to find ourselves in this story because it speaks to the person who needs hope. It speaks to the person that just needs to obey what Jesus is asking them to do. And it speaks to the person who needs to really see who Jesus is. And so let's jump into this. John chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. As he was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. We must do the works of one, uh, we must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After he said these things, he spit on the ground, made some mud from the saliva, and spread the mud on his eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he left, washed, and came back seeing. So there are four primary types of healing miracles in the Gospels that are repeated over and over. Jesus makes the lame walk, the mute talk, the deaf hear, and the blind see. I can't do any of that stuff. So all of those miracles are impressive in their own right. But I think healing someone who is blind entails the greatest degree of difficulty because of the complexity of the human eye. The retina is the part of your eye that creates an image from the light entering your eye. It's what tells your brain, hey, we're seeing something. And the retina makes close to 10 billion calculations a second before it even sends a signal to your brain telling it we see something, before it sends that light to your brain. It would actually take a Cray supercomputer, the best supercomputer we have, around 100 years to simulate what happens in your eye every second. Most of us take our eyesight for granted unless we lose it or it slowly fades. It's just not something we think about. We see, we've always seen. But it gets even more complex. 42 days after conception, the first neuron is formed in a baby's brain, and by birth, there are an estimated 86 billion brain cells. And as a newborn begins to experience sights and sounds and tastes for the first time, all these connections between those neurons called synapses begin to develop. By the time a baby is six months old, each of those 86 billion cells has around 18,000 connections shooting off from it. So if you could imagine a city with 86 billion skyscrapers and each skyscraper is shooting off 18,000 connections and has all these connections coming to it, that is the complexity of your brain. 
and the ability for a newborn to see is wired in the brain when all those connections are happening between birth and 18 months. In fact, if you were to put an, an eye patch over one of a newborn's eyes and leave it there for a couple years, they would be blind in that eye because those billions of connections were not able to be formed. This process is called synaptogenesis. Now, you might be wondering, what in the world does this have to do with Jesus healing a blind man? Jesus doesn't just heal a blind man. He heals a man born blind. There are a lot of us that are legally blind unless we have glasses on or we're wearing contacts. At night when my wife Joy has taken her glasses off or her contacts aren't in and I see something on social media and I want to show her, this is where I have to hold the phone for her to see it because she is legally blind without her contacts in or her glasses on. Some of us later in life develop an eye condition that a doctor can fix so that we don't become blind. But when you are born blind, it means that your brain did not create the billions of connections it needed to make in order for you to see. And not only that, but the window of opportunity for those connections to be made has passed. So you are born blind into an irreversible condition. And so when Jesus heals the man born blind, he hardwires this man's brain. He creates connections that weren't there. Jesus does not fix anything. He creates something. In fact, he creates billions of somethings that were not there. This is why he puts mud on the man's eyes, which just seems like a weird thing to do like some weird backwoods Galilean trick, you know? Why would you put mud on someone's eyes and say, hey, uh, you can see now? What Jesus is doing is he's declaring his identity. Jesus wants us to think about this miracle with creation imagery because in Genesis 2, when God creates Adam, how does he do it? He uses the mud of the earth to create Adam, and here you have Jesus proclaiming the same kind of creative power. The creation story is our introduction to God. Genesis 1.1, we read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what I love about this verse, the very first verse we read in the Bible, is that the Hebrew word for create, bara, is only used of God in the Bible. It is never used of humans because we don't create in the way God creates. We reform things or rearrange things or recalibrate things. We don't create something from nothing. We don't have the same creative power as God. And I love how the book of Hebrews explains this. It says, by faith we understand that the entire universe was formed at God's command. That what we now see did not come from anything that can be seen. And in the way Genesis describes how God does this, it doesn't just say, hey, God created something from nothing, the end. It gets very poetic about how God does this. It says, now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. God is so powerful that he created 
this incredible universe from a formless and empty mess. Nothing had a function. Nothing had a purpose. Nothing really existed. It was nothing. And God spoke into that and created. And so what does that have to do with Jesus? Well, this is what John, at the beginning of his gospel, says it has to do with Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And so when Jesus heals the man born blind and he puts mud on his eyes, he's drawing on creation imagery to say, the same thing I was doing in the beginning is what I'm doing right now pastor named Mark Batterson explains it beautifully like this. The same one that spoke order into chaos at the dawn of creation is still doing it. And he does it again with the man born blind. That man's world was not unlike the pre-creation world described in Genesis. Darkness was over the face of the deep. Then the same one that caused Genesis caused synaptogenesis. So by using mud, Jesus is declaring his identity. He's asserting his power. He originally formed humanity from the dust of the earth, Genesis. And now he's telling these billions of connections that weren't there to spring into life, synaptogenesis. And so to me, when you read a verse like this from Proverbs, it just makes it Come alive, ears that hear and eyes that see the Lord has made them both. He is over both of those things because he is the creator. And so the first person this passage speaks to needs hope. They're a lot like the blind man. Something in your life seems impossible or insurmountable. Something you can't fix Because it doesn't need rearranged or reconfigured or recalibrated, it needs to be recreated. And the reason John 9 speaks hope to you is because it points you to Jesus, the one who created everything in the first place and the one who can recreate anything in the second place. And so John 9 gives us hope. I love what Jesus is doing when he puts mud on the man's eyes. I know it seems so strange at first, but I love the imagery there. I love the truth being communicated there. But then when we read on, another question pops up for me. Why not just heal the man right on the spot? It's odd that he makes him walk to the pool of Siloam because what we know that's happening in Jerusalem at this time is the Feast of Tabernacles is ending. This was a big festival in the life of the Jewish faith where they would celebrate God leading them out of Egypt. They were to do this as a reminder every single year. So Jerusalem was packed, thousands and thousands of extra people lining the streets. And so Jesus puts mud on the face of a blind man, makes him walk through crowded streets down hundreds of steps to wash in the pool of Siloam. Like, it just seems mean, like a practical joke or something. What's going on here? The pool bears symbolic importance for Jesus, so this could be one reason. Over 20 times in John's gospel, Jesus is called the one who has been sent by God. 
And now the man born blind is sent to the pool called sent by the one who has been sent. And so Jesus might just be trying to reinforce here, I am the one who is making this happen, not the pool. There's nothing magical about it. But I don't think we thought that when we were reading it. I don't think he thought this when he was experiencing it because he'd washed in the pool before and he was still blind. So what's going on? Well, Scripture is very clear when it comes to the sequence of this miracle. The man doesn't see until he washes in the pool. And so we're left to assume that if he did not follow Jesus' instructions and wash in the pool, the miracle would not have happened. There was nothing magical about the waters, but most miracles require an act of blind obedience. Sometimes God wants to see if you're serious. Do you really want the miracle you are asking for? Do you really want God to work in your life? And are you willing to do what he asks you to do when he tells you to do it? What if our desire for God to make sense and for God to do things our way actually overshadows our desire for God to work? When Jesus tells this story, he's drawing on another Old Testament image from 2 Kings 5, where a prophet named Elisha heals a man with leprosy named Naaman, and the miracle is very similar because he's told to go wash in a pool. Now, I want you to see how Naaman responds and how he responds very differently from the blind man. But Elisha sent a messenger out to him with this message, go and wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River. Then your skin will be restored and you will be healed of your leprosy. But Naaman became angry and stalked away. I thought he would certainly come out to meet me, he said. I expected him to wave his hand over the leprosy and call on the name of the Lord and heal me. In other words, I was expecting the prophet to heal me right here, right now. That's what I wanted. But since he's not going to do that, I have some suggestions for the right way to do it. And so Naaman goes on to say, aren't the rivers of Damascus? the Abana and the Parpar, better than the rivers of Israel. Why shouldn't I wash in them and be healed? In other words, he's saying, you're not going to do things my way on my timeline, so how about now I give you some advice for the right way to do it? Naaman and the man born blind couldn't be different. The man born blind just goes to the pool. Naaman gives all these excuses for why God should do it differently. And so Naaman turns and went away in a rage, and he's not healed. But eventually his servants talk him into going to the Jordan, and he's finally healed. But this represents a crossroads that many of us will face. God wants to work in your life, but are you willing to be inconvenienced? We're willing to follow Jesus. But when it becomes inconvenient, that might be where we stop. That might be where we begin to question. Are we willing to have faith? What, when, what about when God says, go bathe in the Jordan seven times, go wash in the pool of Siloam, and you're like, that makes zero sense. Why would I do that? But faith is taking the first step before God reveals the second step. 
Here's something else to think about. Are you willing to work for it? Sometimes miracles require sweat equity. Your effort does not make them happen. You do not coerce God into working in your life. But your lack of effort can keep them from happening. You cannot earn a miracle, but effort is part of the equation. Theologian and philosopher Dallas Willard said it this way, but it is crucial to realize that grace is not opposed to effort, but to earning. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. Without effort, we would be nowhere. When you read the New Testament, you see how astonishingly energetic it is. Paul says, take off the old man, put on the new. There's no suggesting that will be done for you. It has been made possible for you, but there's no suggesting it will be done for you. So it makes sense why even the brother of Jesus, James, says faith without action is dead. Now, just to be clear, I'm not saying... If you are asking God to do something and he doesn't seem to be showing up or he doesn't seem to be answering, that the reason is you have some sort of secret sin in your life or you're not having enough faith so you need to try harder or you need to believe better. I'm not saying that. John chapter 9 is simply a recognition that when you are disobedient to what God has asked you to do, you are actively working against him. And so some of us need to hear that this morning because we want God to work in our lives, but we're not all that interested in being obedient. And so the miracle doesn't happen for the man born blind until he is obedient to what Jesus tells him to do. Once the blind man is healed, he's interrogated about the experience. And I get this. If there was someone that I knew was blind all the way up to being an adult, and all of a sudden they could see, I would be very skeptical, and I would ask them, why were you willing to fake being blind for so many years, and what's wrong with your parents for going along with it, right? Like, I would be very skeptical about that. And then, if I could confirm that they had, in fact, been blind, I would want to know all about the one who had healed this person. So that's what's happening as we begin to jump into the next part of the passage where the blind man is questioned and interrogated by the people. In verses 8 through 13, his neighbors question him. His neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar said, isn't this the one who used to sit begging? Some said, yeah, he's the one. Others were saying, no, but he looks like him. And he kept saying, I'm the one. So they asked him, how then were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes and told me, go to Siloam and wash. So when I went and washed and received my sight, where is he? They asked. I don't know, he said. So they brought the man who used to be blind to the Pharisees. So the neighbors are confused. Is this the man who was born blind or not? It looks like him. It doesn't look like him. It is him. It can't be him. It must be his twin who was born with sight. Like something's going on here. But ultimately, 
They are not willing to make a decision, and so they pass him off to the religious authorities. And at this point in the story, the man born blind identifies Jesus as a man. The man named Jesus healed me. In the next scene, the Pharisees question him for the first time. Now, the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He's probably already tired of saying this. He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. They turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. So the Pharisees questioned the man about the healing. But here's what's interesting. They're not really amazed that he was blind and now he sees. They're angry that Jesus did this on the Sabbath. They're mad that Jesus broke their rules. And the man born blind in the midst of this progresses a little bit. This man named Jesus must be a prophet. So the religious leaders then decide, let's question his parents. Like if this man was really blind, his parents would know the answer to this. So they still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind, but how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders, who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be, would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So his parents are willing to say, this is our son. He was born blind. Apparently, he now sees. We have no clue how this happened. And the reason they pass it off is because not only do the Pharisees say Jesus is a sinner, but they say anyone else who associates with him is a sinner, and they threaten excommunication from the synagogue, which doesn't mean a lot to us. We live in a world in Lubbock, Texas, with hundreds of churches. You don't like the heights? Go across the street. You don't like that one? Go across the other street. You don't like that one? Hundreds of others to choose from. It's not threatening to us. But to tell a Jew in the first century, if you believe in this Jesus and you will be excommunicated from the synagogue, that is saying we will tear away from you the center of your life and the center of your faith, and that was not worth it to them. And so at this point in the story, the Pharisees say not only is this man Jesus a sinner, but anyone who follows him is also a sinner. And so then we come into the fourth scene where the religious leaders question the man a second time. It just gets messier and messier. A second time, 
they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did, your op- how did he open your eyes? And he answered, I have told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? And this next statement is probably the biggest burn you could give to a Pharisee. Do you want to be his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. And the man answers, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And to this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. So the tension reaches a high point. And what's interesting is the man born blind actually becomes the teacher. He teaches them about who Jesus is. His logic is sound. And so they do what a lot of us do when we're arguing with someone and we can't think of an argument. We just attack them personally. Say, why don't you shut up? You're a sinner. Because they can't come up with an argument to refute what he's saying about Jesus. Amid all of this chaos, though, the Pharisees, again, go deeper. They're still unwilling to follow Jesus because they are disciples of Moses. But in the midst of that chaos, the man born blind says, Jesus, the man who has healed me, who is a prophet, must be from God. And then in the final scene, Jesus heard that the man, that they had thrown the man out. And when they found him, he asked, do you believe in the son of man? Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus answered, and I love this part, you have seen him. You have seen him because he has given you sight. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. I believe, Lord, he said, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment in order that those who do not see will see and those who do see will become blind. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and asked, we aren't blind too, are we? Now, this is not a question of concern. They are making fun of Jesus' statement. Oh, we aren't blind too, are we? Jesus answers, if you were blind, you wouldn't have sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. The Pharisees solidify their unwillingness to follow Jesus. Jesus tells them, even though, you can, even though you think you can see, you are in fact blind. And the man who was born blind sees clearer than ever because he identifies Jesus, the prophet who is from God, as a Lord, and he worships him. Now, in this last part of this passage where the man is interrogated, there are two important movements that are happening. In one, 
the religious leaders who are born literally in the light because they can see. They are born with sight, end up descending into darkness until they are spiritually blind because they refuse to see Jesus, the light of the world, right in front of them. And then in the other movement, the man who is born in actual darkness because he's born blind ends up seeing more and more and more until he finally proclaims Jesus as Lord. And I really believe that John crafted these stories. This is part of what it means that scripture is inspired. John crafted these stories so that we would see these movements and we would be changed by these movements. Let me show you clearer what I'm talking about. So as the people begin to question Jesus, the ones who are born in the light because they're born with sight, first they say, Ah, we're going to pass off a decision about Jesus. They question the, the man born blind. Who, who did this? What happened? They won't make a decision about Jesus. They pass it off. And then the Pharisees and other Jews decide, well, Jesus must be a sinner because he healed on the Sabbath. So a false belief about Jesus leads to a decision not to follow him. And then they go further into the darkness. That decision not to follow him causes them to prevent others from following him. And then the final step into the darkness where they are eventually spiritually blind is saying, I am going to follow someone else. I'm going to follow Moses, not Jesus. And all the while they're descending into darkness, this is the really cool part of the story, the man born blind who started in the darkness ends up ascending to the light. Once he's healed physically, he sees clearer and clearer. First, he says, the name of the man is Jesus. Then he says, he's a prophet. Then he says, he's from God. And eventually, he says, he is Lord. And all the while these movements are happening, John takes us through this process so that Scripture works its magic on us. And we, too, are forced to ask the question, am I willing to see Jesus for who he is? The religious leaders like the Pharisees were incredibly impressive. By the time they were 12, they had memorized the first 12 books of the Bible, not the names, the contents. We are in this era in youth ministry right now where students don't even know the names of the books. I've talked with other, with other youth pastors, and this is something we're really working on. Like, we want them to be captivated by these stories, but they don't even know that Genesis is the first book and Revelation is the last book. They don't know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are stories about Jesus called Gospels. But the Pharisees, by the time they were 12, had memorized the contents of the first 12 books. By the time they were 16, they had memorized the entire Old Testament. They had committed to memory more than 300 prophecies about the Messiah. And yet, with all of that knowledge, being so enlightened, they are not able to see Jesus right in front of them. And so John is asking us the question, what really makes someone blind? What really makes someone spiritually blind? blind, and his answer is very clear. If you are a disciple or follower of something or someone else, you are living in darkness. You are the one who is blind. 
Now, here's the thing. Some people may not think of themselves as a disciple or a follower. They may choose not to follow Jesus, but by making that choice, they are also choosing to follow something or someone else. We all follow something. We all worship someone, all of us. We don't get that choice. The only choice we get is what or who, not if. The Pharisees were, by their own admission, disciples of Moses. And honestly, what a great person to be a disciple of. What a great person to follow. But he's not Jesus. Some of us run after and pursue some good things. But those things are not Jesus. And so in the previous chapter, Jesus says this about himself. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It's John 8, 12. The flip side of that statement is whoever does not follow me is walking in darkness. The real tragedy of this story in John 9 is not that there was a man who was born blind that had no safety net to take care of him, that would never be married, that had to beg, that had people spit on him and kick dust on him. That's not the real tragedy of the story. The tragedy is that the ones who think they see are actually walking in darkness and they reject the only one that can take them out of the darkness. John 9 begins with this question. What sin made this man blind? And we end with this great reversal. Jesus always does this. He always turns things upside down. And the reversal is that the only sin present is the unwillingness to follow Jesus. And that sin creates the worst kind of blindness. Some of us this morning need hope. Our life is a mess we're facing things we cannot fix because we need them to be recreated and Jesus offers us hope. Some of us need to obey. God is trying to work in our lives. He has done the work already. We are just simply being disobedient. And some of us need to see. We need to follow the light of the world so that we don't continue to walk in darkness believing that we actually see. God, this morning, we thank you for Jesus, the one who gives us hope in the face of impossibility, the one who calls us to an obedience that is worth it, and the only one who can cause us to see, who can open our eyes. And so, God, it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, thank you for being a part of what God's doing here at the Heights Fellowship. If the Lord led you to make a decision or you have a question or a need, we want to hear from you. Send us an email at the email listed below, info at theheightsfellowship.org. And we will join you in praying as you take a step forward on your journey with God.